This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rob Sherwood, the host of this channel. Today, we'll be talking with Adam Elder about his book, New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever. Adam, grateful to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun to be here. Adam, this is an awesome title of the book. It's probably the longest book outside of some of the history books I had to read in graduate school. (laughs) Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I live in San Diego. I'm a freelance writer. I did uh, a lot of work as uh, editing magazines and primarily print magazines. Uh, and now I freelance for mostly about sports for the New York Times, Esquire, Wired, the New Yorker's website, uh, New York Magazine, Vice, uh, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, and places like that. Uh, okay. I grew, up, uh, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, and went to school in Seattle at the University of Washington, and then back to the University of Oregon. Uh, I guess I just couldn't stay away. And relocated to San Diego about 20 years ago. And yeah, I've been here ever since. Okay, cool. So um, that, that's awesome. How did you just, just wonder, did you play soccer growing up? Or was this a, a later in life um, vocation that you jumped into? I played soccer starting in middle school, right about the time I gave up tackle football. Because, you know, those seasons uh, overlap. <laughs> yeah. you, really can't, you really can't do both. And... I just became, I became curious about soccer. And really, I think, I think it was that 1990 World Cup that initially sparked my interest in soccer. I didn't really have a concept until then, at least in, in, in hindsight, as, as I kind of remember it, I didn't really have a concept of adults playing soccer really, or like, or anyone beyond like little kids. I mean, that sounds kind of stupid, but yeah, it I that's like what I most recall about the 1990 World Cup that I ended up writing about. It it just sort of um it was eye-opening in that sense uh, uh, among many other things about soccer to me. And so 
uh, I was getting a little, I, I'd played football for three years. Um, and you know, I just wasn't that big of a kid. And I remember honestly, like getting my bell rung on a few tackles and I just, maybe there's something in me that I was also curious about soccer and maybe a little disenchanted with football and also just that sort of militaristic way that, you know, even youth football coaches feel they have to act where you feel like you're in boot camp and, you know, getting yelled at every practice, <laughs> getting chewed out. Uh, I, it, soccer was just so intriguing. And so I played it from, um, I don't know, like sixth or seventh grade onward. And I'm still playing it, honestly, just in rec leagues. And I do some street soccer, some street futsal. And um, yeah, it's just always been an interest of mine. I just love it. Okay. It sounds like you're kind of growing up with similar to mine. I grew up in a roughly rural area of upstate New York and soccer and football were the same seasons. My dad played all the traditional sports, football, basketball, baseball, and he didn't want any of his kids to play football. So we all ended up playing soccer. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Excellent. And that, the, There weren't that many of us at the time. I mean, there were obviously kids playing soccer and soccer leagues and stuff, but it didn't quite feel like the thing to do, at least somewhat where I came from, but certainly not in other places and just wasn't, just wasn't what it is now whatsoever. I don't know about you. Yeah. Similar, similar, my experience. I mean, now my, my high school, we had, our football team was terrible. So our better athletes were playing <laughs> soccer and we had more people coming to our soccer matches. Okay. Not saying they were any good. They were just better than the football wow. team. <laughs> you were one of those schools. I was always jealous of that, the, the schools that had some, some soccer cachet. That must've been yeah, cool. We had a, had a little bit. Um, we had a little bit. And what's interesting is I'm, we're roughly the same age. This is a, the first real kind of soccer that I remember um, paying attention to on an adult level, very similar to you, which is kind of cool. So, right. Adam, so your your book is um, structured in kind of a really interesting way. I love the fact <laughs> that every chapter starts out with a homage to like the 1980s and early 90s music. Now, granted, I'm the eighth of nine kids, so this is the music that I grew up with. If you can kind of explain to us why you chose like how you went about structuring the book and especially kind of pulling these song titles out that are really relevant to the chapters that you're writing. Well, when I first had the idea to, to, to do this as a book, I mean, it, it, it started as a, as an online article for the New Yorker's website. And it was only talking about this, this sort of music video, this music video that, that appears at one point in the book. But, you know, when, when you, have an idea and you start chasing the idea, you start doing all this research. And so I was reading a lot about the time period and just trying to figure out what else was going on, you know, in, in 1988, 1989, 1990. And I remembered, you know, I came across, you know, billboard charts and, and uh, the, you know, box office of, of those years. And just so much of this like cultural stuff sort of came back to me. Um, and I recall that, you know, this is the stuff I grew up on, both of us. And it was it was not only really fun, of course, this, you know, nostalgic and 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 everything, but um it also occurred to me along the way that this was kind of a really interesting time in the world. And also I I, I suppose like in an opposite way for the, the, the status of American soccer so where, you know, uh, American cultural supremacy was, was everywhere. The cold war was one. Mm -hmm. We're exporting our culture all over the world. And yet American soccer is, is pretty much nowhere. You know, it's, we hadn't reached the world cup 
it it wasn't a thing. Americans didn't just, I mean, your average American tended to hate soccer, but more than that, they just sort of ignored it and either weren't aware of it or sort of pretended it 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 didn't exist or maybe it really didn't exist to them. And so I just thought it was it it would be so interesting to sort of juxtapose, you know, these these sort of high points in popular culture to uh, the whereabouts of, of this team I wrote. And, and also I, I suppose it kind of works as, as, as a framing device too, where a person reading this book in 2022, 2023, they may, there's a great chance they don't remember a lot about this team or maybe nothing. And yet I think most people either of a certain age, or maybe if they're younger, they at least have a, a sort of a, a notion through pop culture of, of what this time period was like. So what I really want to do was to tie the story of this team to a time period that that had like a real feel and a vibe and a zeitgeist that the people that I, I think most people can can relate to or can recall or or have some sort of of notion of you know it was um, it was kind of like the the apotheosis of the eighties, that sort of last gasp of the eighties before, you know, Nirvana came along and, and, and changed everything. And so it was this really happy period, you know, the, the, the colors were bright. We we're inventing all these, you know, crazy new sports and uh, you know, the, the, the songs and the music were all just very, um, very slick and produced and, and, and the movies were blockbuster. And again, it just seemed like this really interesting thing to compare the status of American soccer to, which is, which is what the book was about. Um, just the fact that these players existed in, in such a time period seemed like a really interesting thing to do. And also, I, I guess, you know, I didn't realize this on a conscious level, but I just always knew I didn't want to write like a quote unquote boring history book. And I just wanted to do something, <laughs> you know, maybe it's a shtick or may, maybe it's, you know, I, I just want to try something, I guess. And, um, all of these, I, I should mention too, you, you, you mentioned the chapter titles. Um, I, I went a little overboard on this as I usually do. And on the website, I made a whole soundtrack and I was going to do it, you know, for, you know, the, the high points in the book, but it ended up being like, just like every chat, every like page had its own song. I just couldn't help myself. So I just love the time period and it seemed like a fun thing to do. And, um, it's all, I, I brought that up to, to, to also say that it was also very, I, I went to the trouble of making sure it was like chronologically accurate too, so that almost all these songs took place like in the weeks and months that the story took place. So it was a fun thing to do, I guess. Well, I, I, I enjoyed it and I can tell you, um, thank you for not writing a boring history book. I've read <laughs> lots of them in my life and for our listeners, this one is definitely not a boring history book. Even if you don't like soccer, it's a, there, there's a lot in here. Um, for just kind of the, as you mentioned that on the kind of the wrap up of the 80s into the 90s, it's it's a great kind of picture into this uh, this time period in American history. So, a, kind of a more research based question from a from a specific research point of view. Obviously, uh, in reading it, there is a lot of information that does not come from public sources. How did you go about getting interviews and getting these people to talk to you? Because as a historian, that's always one of the challenges is getting someone to trust you. So <laughs> what was your process? Yeah, for sure. It's pretty straightforward. I, I'm a journalist and I just approached it like that. Um, I began by calling people up and, and tracking them down. 
as as I'd mentioned a moment ago, you know, this this whole thing started with an article that I did uh, several years before, back in 2014. So I already had contact info for a lot of these people when I when I reached reached out to them briefly for the story. But uh, it's one of those things too, where you know when you when you start talking to people, uh, they maybe they don't recall something, but they'll say. Oh, but this person knows. And maybe you haven't heard of this person. They were like the, you know, the equipment manager. No offense to Doug Newman. He's an awesome guy. And and that's, and like, I got some of, some of, you know, some of my best uh, stories and anecdotes from, from folks like him or administrators behind the scenes. You know, um, one thing leads to another. Um, Dr. Joe Macknick, who, you know, we, we know him now as a, a Fox soccer on-air personality, he was the goalkeeping coach for this team. And, and not only that, but he goes so far back in American soccer. He was super helpful. He knows absolutely everyone. He has a wonderful memory and, 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 and like a good, you know, uh, a good eye for storytelling. Uh, he was invaluable. So he would, re- he would, he would refer me to this person and that person. And, and, and also he's just this, you know, really uh, great, optimistic, helpful guy. And also, I think, you know, sort of to your point, one thing that, uh, one thing I had working for me, I guess, to put it is that I think a lot of people, the players and, and like, and like Joe, for example, really wanted the story to be told. And a lot of people are getting up there in age. Uh, you know, a, a couple of them had passed away already have passed away. And, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but like, you know, a couple people, as I'm talking to them, I'd ask them for their recollection of things. And they would just say, you know, I, I, I took a lot of headers or I got a lot of concussions. I don't remember a lot. So, uh, there, there was, there was, a, a an importance to them to, to tell this story. And I don't think a lot of them knew sort of what I was First of all, the angle, and and I think also you know, writers call them up, kind of all the time for like you know piecemeal stuff, so they're kind of used to it. But uh, I think when they saw I, you know how serious I was about this and how deep I wanted to go, I, I I think it was important for them because a lot of them. One thing I love about this team, like that kind of made me fall in love with them a bit as a writer, is that a lot of them had that like a serious chip on their shoulder. And I mean, you know, Twitter and, and whatever people these days say they have that dog in them. Well, they all had that dog in them, like all of them. That that's what made it so cool. And yet they were so overlooked and kind of remain so to this day. And so, again, I, I, I mentioned that just because I, I, I think it was extra important for for them, for a lot of them to to have the story told. But it was just one of those things where, you know, one one source leads to another source and you learn about all these, all these behind the scenes people that I weren't aware of. And I think some of them have, they tend to have yeah. some really good perspective on things because you have the players, but they're sort of in the middle of it. You know, I, I mean, not to be cliche, but you know, they're sort of in the eye of the storm in the way, in, in a way. And it's the people who are half a step back that really have perspective and kind of see things, see everything around it, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it was. I, I just approached it from a very straightforward journalistic angle. 
the only person who wouldn't talk to me of all people was the head coach, Bob Gansler of all this. Really? Yeah. And I thought that would, I mean, it sounds like this enormous handicap, you know, uh, on the one hand, like, oh my God, the coach won't even talk to me. How am I going to get a book out of this? Um, but first of all, it didn't worry me. Um, I talked to him before about some other things and he's, he's a wonderful man, total gentleman in many ways. Um, but also very enigmatic. There's a lot of layers to him. He's super clever. Um, he sort of ends up telling you what he wants to tell you, I, I, I suppose. Um, and so, and, and, and yet his character is kind of, I, I don't want to say like the strong silent type, but there is, you know, this, this, he has this definite quality that he doesn't tend to say more than is necessary. And I thought it would be so, so the fact that he didn't speak to me didn't really complicate things that much, you know, that the story definitely revolves around him, but he has a presence that I, you know, asked a lot of other people about and, and, and things he said. Um, I think it still worked just fine. I, I, I'm honestly not sure the end result would have been different had he spoken to me. I probably would have learned a few more things, but, um, but that's a long way of saying, I don't think the story suffered without his participation. I really don't. I, I think you did a great job of not only addressing that, the chip on the shoulder. I think that comes through pretty clearly that these, that these uh, players have, <laughs> but also I think your, your treatment of Gansler and I didn't realize that he didn't speak with you. I think you treated him very, very fairly. Um, a lot of times, especially with someone as, as prominent as a national team manager, they're the lightning rod for criticism. Um, it would have been very easy <laughs> yeah. to, in the writing of the chapters, as you addressed him, um, whether make him out to be this kind of hero or an anti-hero. And I think he did a great job being nice and, and balanced with that. So he nice never job got on that. The, Well, thank you for that. He never got his due. I mean, he still hasn't. I, you, you talk to a few people and they say, like, it's just – it's almost a crime that he doesn't have a statue built of him somewhere for what he did. And yet, you know, to, to this day, he's sort of, he's overlooked, he's, he's patronized and just really not treated with, I think the respect that I think he deserves. I'm, I'm, I'm not some like, you know, gushing fan of his or anything. I just, but I think he deserves a lot of admiration for what he accomplished. Yeah. So and I, I think you do, I think you do a good job of kind of explaining the challenges that, that faced him. I mean, oh, this is something that yeah. hadn't been done in, decades so the whole and you address this when you talk about the chapter when they get to italy and where are they going to stay what are their training facilities <laughs> me? no one had had to deal with this in decades right. so on top of the on-field stuff he also had to deal with that and yeah that's now it's it's pretty standard there's whole people in the usmnt who deal with in u.s soccer that deal with that so they actually have scouting now they didn't have to hit up <laughs> you know this this the the this man uh, who lives in rural New England, who happened to have a giant satellite dish and record a games for them, you know? Yeah. That was really funny when I was reading that, that that was their only scouting for uh, <laughs> Czechoslovakia, if I remember correctly, was this yeah. random guy, which actually I've had some interactions with him in the past. Oh, um, okay. all, all positive. Uh, so just kind of one last thing about this. How has the book been received by the people that you interviewed? Have you heard from them? Do they like the story that was told? Were they a critical? How'd that go? You know, it's funny. I'm always really hesitant to, like with stories I've written in the past, you know, articles and whatnot, I'm always so hesitant to like send my sources a link to the story. You know, I, I don't know. I don't want to be that like, 
you know, kind of fawning journalist that's like, hope you like it, exclamation point or whatever. <laughs> and so I honestly haven't reached out to any of them. I have no idea how they feel. I, I really, really don't. Um, what's cool is that like some of them follow me on, on Twitter. And so I guess they're aware of, you know, the, the things I say about the book and me promoting it. I mean, the, you know, the photos I share and, and things like that. Um, I couldn't possibly tell you what they think of it or if they're how aware of it they are or, or anything like that. I don't have a clue. Okay. <laughs> no problem with that. So your book uh, reveals a lot of tension, um, tension between the players, between the organization, uh, especially to, towards the journalists that are covering the team. Can you go into that uh, a little bit? What can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Yeah, it was um, it was a time in American soccer where they're you know they're trying to overcome a lot of inertia. The, the federation was just this you know very small operation up up until the late eighties, and it was run by this um, you know, very, very visionary man, uh, kind of larger-than-life figure in, in many ways, named Werner Fricker, who was a naturalized American from the German-speaking part of Yugoslavia. And like this very cliche sort of, sort of version of the American dream where he arrived here, he's a construction worker, eventually built his own construction empire and, and uh, became wealthy. He was also a soccer player uh, for the U.S. national team and, and like fiercely patriotic about the United States. And he was determined to, you know, put put American soccer on on the world map and 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 make the world respect American soccer. And you had players who, you know, were were hungry and in a sense fighting for survival uh, in, in many ways. And between, you know, and, and you know, they're they're professional athletes but they're professional athletes in a sport that, you know, no one wants anything to do with in, 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 in this country. And so when, so the, the Federation was, was generous enough and, 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 and far reaching enough to, um, and, and Werner Fricker in fact was, was, was farsighted enough to reach into his own pockets and fund the push to qualify for the 1990 world cup. When the U S finally did that and the players, you know, pulled it off, they realized that you know, the, each federation who qualifies for the World Cup gets a bunch of money, and they said, "You know, show me the money." In, in essence, when 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 they were going for new contracts, well, I'm pretty sure Fricker wanted his money back, and the tension came from the players thinking, "We did all this work; we deserve more," and the federation saying, "Well, most federations don't pay their players anyway." This is, you know, take it or leave it. That's <laughs> that's essentially what they said. Or else we'll find, you know, 23 other players to take to the World Cup. And so there was a lot of back and forth about that. And then also there was um, <laughs> there was the 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 deal with Adidas that the Federation had, which precluded any players playing for their national team from wearing any other shoes or any other gear. And 10 of them had a deal with Puma and 
the fact that it was Puma versus Adidas, which is, is kind of funny because that's like this really dysfunctional, you know, yes, rivalry. That's a and, long history. That's yeah, a long history there. Exactly. Um, but this was a, a, a time when players had a, a really hard time earning any money outside, outside soccer, like endorsement deals. Puma was paying them 10,000 bucks a year, which was like good money to them. And they paid them up front for two years and they didn't want to, they, they thought Puma was like at least being loyal to them. So there was, there was that animosity, which didn't help matters. And then there was, and then there was the media component that you mentioned where, you know, so, so many sports writers and, and especially their, their, you know, sports, sports desk editors at newspapers were just so antagonistic towards soccer. It was never a sport they paid much attention to or liked or certainly understood. And so they covered it. A, a lot of them, not all of them, there, there are, there are a few writers out there um, who, you know, always liked it and, and, and understood the game, but a lot of them, you know, the, the sports writers that were assigned to the team were, as I understood it from the players and, and, and people at the Federation, you know, covering it almost against their will, they want to be on the basketball beat or the football beat or, or, or things like that. And so the players and the coaches would spend time explaining the finer points of the game to them or just explaining the game in general. And so as the U S made, made qualifying for the world cup difficult as they always do in CONCACAF, I mean, it's, it's going to be difficult no matter what. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's never easy and it's never dull. I like to describe it as, you know, this, this jungle maze full of booby traps along the way, even if it looks straightforward, it's, it's never going to be an American fan just have to accept that. But anyway, as the U S is making tough work of, of qualifying for the world cup, uh, these journalists, it's, I, I suppose if you don't know a lot about soccer, they're, you're probably naturally going to scratch your head as an American and wonder like, you know, why can't an American team just swat aside these, you know, little third world Central American countries like that have, you know, a, a GDP, a sliver of the size of ours, not taking into account, you know, that this is really about like 11 v 11, you know? <laughs> and so, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so much more than that, but anyway. Uh, and so they started to sort of view the U S uh, American soccer, the U S team in a negative light as well. And, and, almost resenting the fact that they have to cover this team that can't even beat these, you know, these, these teams from countries they think so little of. And so there was just, there was a lot of pressure. It was such a pressure cooker atmosphere. And, 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 and then you have the player side of this who, you know, I, I talked about their animosity toward the Federation with their contracts, but they think that, um, for them, the future, the, their careers and the future of the sport are very much on the line. Um, the U S had already been awarded the 1994 world cup, but a lot of them understood that to be conditional based on them qualifying or not for the 1990 world cup. And some of them were just getting married. Some of them were just buying homes. Like it was make or break for them. Um, they would have to like get jobs outside soccer. There would be no more soccer for them. So they had to get this done. Like amid all of these things I just rambled about. Um, it was a very tense time. And as a writer, it makes for, you know, a great sort of narrative tension, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean, what a time for, for American soccer, even when no one was paying attention. 
I just kept thinking of all those journalists that you talked about, many of them who are real frustrated to be uh, covering the team. I'm not sure how frustrated they were when their editor told them, well, you have to spend the next three weeks in Italy. Go suffer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or even Trinidad. It sounds, it sounds yeah. like it must have been a lovely trip. And, and yet they... And yet the night before that famous make or break game in Trinidad, a lot of them were almost mocking the U.S.'s attempts, almost almost rooting for their failure to hear to hear some American folks, folks in American soccer tell it. It's it, it was a very strange time. I mean, the, and, and that's another thing I love about the story. It was probably the most cynical time for soccer in America when, when you take the whole, I mean, you know, I, I recall in the nineties, I, I wrote about this in a, in a, in an article for the New Yorker during the world cup a couple months ago, that that whole thing where like sports writers were writing the, why I hate soccer column, like every time the world yep. cup would roll around in the nineties and two thousands, which almost became this weird, like sports writer tradition. And, and, and a lot of them like were actually recycling their columns, which I, I remember Deadspin found out about, which was really funny. But uh, my point is that wasn't even a thing like in the 80s. Like no sports writer really had to write that as far as I could tell. It was just this, soccer wasn't even worthy of score, you know. <laughs> so uh, I, I find I, I research another sport that's relatively minor. And every time the Olympics comes up, there's always that column that you see every four years. Here's why I can't stand this sport. And, yeah, and you're right. Soccer at that time period, it was the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. It, yeah. It's a strange time. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds. And I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So kind of transitioning more to today, when you tell people that you wrote a book about a time that no one cared about U.S. soccer. What's their general reaction today? What's their reaction to to the, there was a time of that no one cared oh, about U.S. soccer? How to explain that? Yeah, that's the interesting thing. You know, uh, I mean, I you look at the last World Cup a couple months ago, and like we had these massive watch parties. I went to one. There were like I, I forget like ten thousand people there or something like that, and. You know, every everyone's writing about it. People are talking about it. You know, bars are opening up here on the West Coast at six a.m. and and there's like you know lines out the door. It's so hard to. I guess what I'm trying to say is like the way the human mind works is we're so focused on on the present that it's so easy to forget what the past was like. And like even for me who grew up, you know getting like made fun of by, by the football players, you know, for, for playing soccer and stuff. Like it was, it was, uh, eye opening for me to like go back and, and remember details uh, about what it was like. Um, even like reading, you know, old newspaper clippings and, 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 and stuff like that. But I think, I guess the best way to, you know, portray that is why, well, I mean, to answer your question to, to talk about it, it is, 
I feel like most people kind of forget about that, maybe just because soccer wasn't on their radar at the time. But it it is people are sort of fascinated when you when you talk about what soccer was like back then. But I mean, writing writing the book, I think it was important to your point to fixate on and 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 to include details about you know the the number of fans in attendance and the size of the press pack and the fact that qualifying for the World Cup was like a local news item on the on on the five o'clock news. You know, it wasn't like it wasn't like they had a press pack. It was like oh, a local guy qualified for, for some big soccer tournament sort of thing. And, uh, you know, really just those sort of classical journalism cliches of show, don't tell, really. I mean, I did open the book sort of talking about soccer's uh, boom and bust of the, of the NASL, the North American Soccer League. So I was doing a little bit of telling, but I was kind of focused mostly on showing. Or the fact that, you know, the 1990 World Cup was on, Turner networks, TNT and TBS, which were, you know, even less regarded than they, than they are now, I suppose. And, uh, you know, were, were commentated on by a baseball announcer and an NFL, a retired NFL place kicker who just happened to be British. So they figured he, I, he actually did a nice job. His name is Mick Luckhurst, but, you know, replaying the, um, the games, and, and, and that's another thing, uh, folks at ESPN and, and, and US Soccer were kind enough to, to, to give me the archives uh, for those games. But, but watching those games, I mean, <laughs> it's almost like, <laughs> first of all, they cut to commercials. And second of all, it's almost surprising that the, the commentators didn't explain that like people can't use their hands or something. It was just like such a basic level of, of soccer uh, that... It's just, um, I think to answer your question, it's, it's in the details. It's in, it's in how you tell the story that, that you hopefully get people to realize the state of soccer at the time and, and, and how far things have come now. I, I remember watching games when they would cut to commercials <laughs> and you hope that a goal wasn't scored, a, a yellow card, a red yeah. card, or an injury didn't happen. I also remember when they went to that little box in the top of the screen where they kept the game going while the commercial was playing. So if anything yeah. happened, you could see that. Right. right. And where I grew up, we had a, we had a, a minor league soccer team and, and the first play-by-play person was the hockey announcer. Oh yeah. And so, so it, people would be dumping the ball into the corner like you would in hockey. <laughs> like the, the terminology was, was similar. And to see kind of in a sense of journalistic uh, and production of a soccer match today it's mm. so light years ahead of where it was then. It is, and and soccer's funny that way, where like you say, when you when you cut to commercial, but then you come back from commercial, the the fact that it's been disrupted is is so uh, disorienting. It's it's a game that you're used to just seeing sort of proceed continuously. I guess it's it's really weird. It's it's a very uh, not like not disturbing in, in, in an upsetting sort of way, but it's just um, when you lose that continuity, it's, it's very strange, I guess, just because we're so used to it now. And yeah, it's, yeah, the, the, it's come a long way. I think is the easiest way of summarizing that. Oh, even just, the, um, even just the style of soccer back then, you know, that was, that was back when, uh, when defenders could, could pass back to the goalkeeper and the goalkeeper picks it up and dribbles it for a, for a few seconds and then just boots it. And it was, it was long ball soccer. And the philosophy was, you know, let's, let's get it at the other end. There's be more, there's more scoring chances. What, what, you know, 
why like why bypass why go through the midfield when you can just like get at the other end if you can and try and win the ball there. But your tall people, so, tall fast anyway, people yeah, on top, I mean, and they the can game, run. Everything's come a long way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. incredible. So, any humorous stories um, from maybe that didn't make it in the book that you'd be willing to share? Uh, obviously, you don't have to name names if you don't want to, either from <laughs> your research or from just kind of talking to people about this moment in American history and American sports history. Not so much. I was very fortunate to be able to feel like I told exactly the story I wanted to tell. You know, when when I was sort of laying it out um, in a in a narrative structure, I mean, the whole thing just fit it fit perfectly, like a hand in a glove. I couldn't believe it. Um, there were a few. I mean, there were a few like uh, anecdotes and things like that that I couldn't really verify. Uh, so, so there are small things, but I was, I was very fortunate to be able to insert some of the, to be able to use like all the, all the humorous bits I could, you know, just these sort of, there is this sort of like, you know, comedy of errors that you alluded to, like finding a place to stay for the team and just kind of like, honestly, sort of like bumbling their way into a world cup in so many ways. And, and, you know, it's, I mean, uh, it's. I'm not blaming anyone is everyone was doing the best they can. And, and I guess that's sort of the, the, the point I was trying to make with this book. I didn't realize it until I'd actually like written the whole thing and it was published, but I, it's so hard to do something for the first time. You know, that, mm-hmm. that first step is so essential, but it's, um, but so hard to pull off, like it's way more than most people realize. And, and so, uh, the fact that they not only qualified, but, you know, did all the things they did and, and, you know, made the, it's probably essential to, to, to make a few of those mistakes as, as learning opportunities as, as anyone would, you know, it's, it sounds silly because we're talking about sports to compare it to like getting to the moon, but it's, it's like trying to get to the moon these days. Like so much time has passed and, you know, a, a lot of key figures have, have probably passed away that maybe NASA's forgotten how to get to the moon. And I think it was kind of like that. Never mind how much soccer had changed since the U.S. had last been to the World Cup in 1950, but like learning how to get back to the World Cup and and what to do once you're there was just this like lost uh, lost art. And they had to figure it out from scratch, and they did it. And so, um, I mean, it's 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 funny in hindsight, but you know, all this stuff was important, and it was equally imp- and and it became even more important because they were all taking copious notes because they knew the 1994 world cup was going to come around. And the 1994 world cup was like organizationally and obviously financially like a, just a runaway success. It remains the most popular world cup of all time. Even after uh, the um, number of teams was increased, it still holds the attendance record, which is astonishing. But anyway, um, they were all taking notes and, you know, all this stuff had to happen for a reason. And I was just glad to be able to, to, to take it down and, and write it down. I guess all the humorous bits I got were, um, you know, from, from research I did or from stories that, that people told. Um, I've, I felt very fortunate to, you know, be able to hear, um, hear the funny stories about the players and, and whatever else and, and, and be able to tell it. Um, there's a few things that didn't make it into the book, but it's not because they were um, 
funny. It's because it's, it's they would be possibly libelous, but anyway, that's a story for offline. Yeah, I, I think everyone has those. Uh, if you work in oral histories at all, I think everyone has those stories that you can't be verified, and it's probably good that they can't be verified because if you were to put it in, that's uh, probably not going to end up real well. Very much so. Yes. Yeah. Didn't affect the outcome at all. I, I'm happy to say. So you, you mentioned something in there that I want to kind of follow up with. So you said the Soccer Federation was kind of taking copious notes. So in 94, they kind of wouldn't make some of the same mistakes. Um, in your book, you talk about where as the U.S. is going around trying to find a location to set up for their their base camp, if you will, for the um, time that they're in Italy. Right. They're, they're kind of led to a not so nice place by an Italian <laughs> person who may or may not have been influenced by the fact that the United States was going to play Italy. Right. Um, did. And I know this is kind of pushing forward to the 94 World Cup. Did it appear that uh, the United States was a little bit better than that in 94 or the group stages against Colombia? Did they have the Colombians go to a place that's not so nice? Does that make sense? The question that I'm asking? Oh, that's interesting. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if the Americans were as um, in, in, in hosting the 94 World Cup. I don't know the ins and outs of that. I don't know if they were as, um, Machiavellian as, as perhaps the Italians <laughs> were in hosting their own world cup. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. Um, I really don't know. Um, yeah, boy, the, the, the mind can wonder. And especially in a sport like soccer where, you know, there's mm -hmm. conspiracies everywhere you look, if you choose to find them. And there are plenty in this book too, not, not just that, but, you know, especially in CONCACAF rumors of, yeah. of teams being, paid to lose or paid to win or paid to do whatever <laughs> it's it's uh it's 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 fascinating that's i guess that's just another element that we all love about soccer yeah it, and it it is it's it's one ball it's 22 people and there's a lot of fun that can happen in that so had <laughs> it in like the the larger picture here where does this book fit into kind of u.s sports history and then separately where does it fit into kind of u.s soccer history because those would be two separate kind of uh, views. So where does it fit there? Yeah, that's that's such a great question. In terms of U.S. sports history, what I love about this team and the story and what they did and just everything about it is like this was this was American soccer's like introduction to the world or reintroduction. You know, of course, I, I don't want to belittle their their efforts in 1950 and and. The, the, the status of American soccer earlier in the, in the 20th century or anything. But this was, again, at a time when America was, was sort of force-feeding the world, everything else, this was Americans' chance to, and, and this team, to, to bring their soccer to the world. And I, I think, you know, you talk about Olympic sports, and we're used to dominating the Olympics. Um, it was a chance to, um, I had a thought that just escaped me, but, but another one is, you know, speaking of the Olympics, we're so used to as Americans dominating a lot of sports. Of course, we pay no attention to the sports. We don't dominate. There's tons of other sports out there, but, um, but it's interesting in a way to take place to, to, to take part, I should say in the world's most popular sport, the one that everyone else cares about. 
and to not be dominant and to, to, you know, sort of scrap and, and fight our way up the ladder and, 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 and fight for respect, which is something that, uh, Americans, you know, to generally don't, don't have to do at, at least in sports. Um, but also, I mean, it was again, just, just a great time to open ourselves up to the world. It, American culture was so we're given everything to the world and yet we were so insular ourselves. Um, maybe we remain so in some ways, but just the chance to, you know, I mean, you and I were kids watching the world cup I, and, and seeing other countries play this game that, uh, you know, that that was my first opportunity to do that. And I think there's a lot of value in that um, in, in just sort of, exposing ourselves to the world and, and, uh, seeing, seeing what other countries, other teams in the world do as far as its place in American soccer history. I'm obviously a little biased, but I think it's monumental. You know, I, I always regarded this as like the origin story of, of modern American soccer. This was the launch point where everything that's happened since it all started here. It started with Werner Fricker, who I mentioned a few moments ago, you know, having his big dream of having the World Cup take place here and having American soccer taken seriously and giving it a real push. It was so, you know, past attempts were just sort of amateurish, um, for lack of a better words. But, you know, they, I mean, there were people were doing the best they could and, and using the resources available. But Fricker, from what I understand, knew that, uh, you know, that those past attempts were amateurish and yet he refused to believe that it couldn't be done. And he wanted to do what he believed it took to get it done. And he did it. And I guess what's just so cool to me about this book is that when you talk to people, um, talking to people about, about this time period and what they wanted about soccer, what, what they wanted out of soccer, what they hoped soccer could become American soccer. Um, it, like everything came true. We're like, we, we made it, we're there. Um, and it all started here. And so that's a long way of saying that, uh, I, I think this, this is like just so important. This, this is, you know, kind of the Rosetta stone in some ways to, to American soccer, you know, the 1994 world cup and the 1994 team gets a lot of credit and, and they deserve everything they get for sure. Um, cause they did a lot and, you know, I, I looked up to them and, and paid them a lot of attention obviously at the time, but, uh, learning about what this team did was just so cool. And, and I don't mean to compare them to the 1994 team, uh, because I do want to say that they were like such a different team too. I mean, the coach, the resources, but just the personalities too. It was just this, I would hope that they never sort of get get blended or confused with each other because they are two very distinct teams in such interesting ways. Um, and so I just, uh, yeah, I, I think this team is important and, and a lot of them are still in the game in some capacity, all except for like, you know, one that I can think of honestly. And so they're all sort of giving back to it. Um, and, 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 and I should say earning a living off of it, which was, <laughs> nothing but a dream back when they were <laughs> fighting time. to make the world cup. Exactly. And so, um, this is where it all began. 
is what I would say. It's interesting to to use an illusion that you made earlier um, with regarding to going to the moon. If 94 World Cup team is Apollo 11, this is like Apollo 8, the first one that goes to the moon and goes around it. Without Apollo 8, you don't get Apollo 11. Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's funny you bring that up too. Maybe it's my fault, but um, I drew a lot of inspiration from this book from uh, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, the book. Now I know that's about the Mercury program, but yep. you know there were so many like really interesting. First of all, I love the book. I love Tom yep. Wolfe. Um, I know he's not everyone's cup of tea, but uh, I absolutely idolize the guy. But I just saw such such really interesting overlaps. Um, you know, you have. Uh, you have these two sort of groups of, of young, very driven men, both, both the aspiring astronauts and, and these, and this U S soccer team, you know, trying to do this thing that a lot of people thought were impossible and to bring the United States, you know, to, I guess, to a better place, to a better future in a way. But then also you have these other sort of subtext throughout both books of, of, both the astronauts and the players sort of wrestling with these notions of like Americanism, patriotism and celebrity. Although, you know, the, the astronauts and the players are coming at celebrity from completely different angles. You know, <laughs> the, the astronauts were like just hounded by, by the media. Whereas, whereas these poor guys couldn't, couldn't get attention no matter how hard they tried. But, you know, that's, that's another element I love about these particular players. And you see it in, in obviously subsequent U.S. men's national team squads. But so many of these players were um, second generation Americans. Their, their, their parents came from, um, came from elsewhere, usually Europe or South America. And to them, you know, they, they grew up differently than, than most kids, including myself, where soccer was this huge thing in their household. I mean, among many different, many differences in, in, in growing up with a, with an immigrant family, but to live your life in a household where soccer is the most important thing and to like dream of bringing your own country, the United States into it one day, and then to be able to do it was just like to, to them. I mean, the, the significance of doing that to them, folks like Peter Vermees told me or, or John Harks or guys like that, Tony Miola was just, I mean, what an amazing thing to do. You know. Yeah. Well. So, Adam, awesome. Thank you. So, what's what's next for you? Uh, I don't have a book next. You know, I I've been trying to help out this one uh, very legendary sports illustrator photographer named George Tiedemann. He's a wonderful guy. Um, he he worked for the NASL and took these gorgeous uh, photos of Pele uh, throughout his NASL career. He's been trying to been trying to do a photo book, a coffee table book on Pele. And I've been, I've been trying to help him, you know, um, sell it and pitch it and, and whatnot for the past couple of years, like, you know, long before Pele passed, passed away. And it's just so weird. We, we, we can't get interest in, and we don't know why. Um, that's something I'd love to, I'd love to see happen. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to wet my beak or anything. I just want to see this thing happen. It's, <laughs> I've seen the photos and it'd be so cool. Um, but other than that, I'm just going back to, uh, writing about, I write a little bit about soccer, um, beyond this book. I write about baseball, um, and then stuff like surfing and skateboarding and whatnot. And, uh, just, just working on that for a moment. Writing a book is, 
such a long multifaceted and, and, and very stressful process. It's been awesome. Uh, but, uh, it's, it's nice to, it's also nice to work on, I guess, smaller projects, if you will, and, and get back to that. That's been a lot of fun <laughs> to get back to. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't, a lot of people ask me, I have to say, like, am I going to write a book about the 94 team now? I have no idea. Um, I haven't been approached about it. It'd be an incredible story. The, the stakes are a lot different, but there's still a lot of narrative tension and, 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 and still some high stakes and the music would be pretty good too. I have to say <laughs> yeah, the music would be pretty good. Good nineties music. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Yep. But, um, but no, I, I don't know. Um, I also don't want to pigeon my pigeonhole myself as, mm-hmm. as working in soccer. I mean, I, uh, uh, how can I say this? it's not easy making a living in soccer in the United States. You know, I, I, I talked a little while ago about how, you know, all all these big dreams of, of visionaries came true 30 some years later, but it's still, there's still just this thing with, with soccer in this country. Um, You know, the, the gatekeepers within, within the media just mostly don't, don't, don't take it seriously or or I should say, don't believe in it. And you know, we, we, we see it all the time. The, all, all, all of the, or most of the blogs for MLS teams just got uh, basically liquidated a couple weeks ago. Um, SB Nation, yeah. Yeah, S- yeah, with SB Nation. And it's just, it's really tough to, first of all, to, to make a living full-time uh, in, in soccer here. And, and also, I don't want to, as a journalist, be overly servile. And, and, and reliance on, you know, <laughs> books like the U.S. Soccer Federation or certain sources or, yeah. or whatever. I really want to always leave myself the opportunity to, like, burn bridges, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> if, if, I, if I need to or if the story demands it. I want to be able to, like, you know, walk away, I guess. Understood. Well, Adam, uh, we've taken a ton of your time. Um, so let me just remind everybody uh, – Adam Elder, New Kids in the World Cup, the totally late 80s and early 90s tale of the team that changed American soccer forever, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Um, Go get a copy. It's a great read. Adam, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for letting me uh, ramble on about all this. I I absolutely love it, and uh, so I appreciate the chance to do so. And this is Rob Sherwood from the New Books Network.